going to have Dan come up and do the scripture reading. The scripture reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, good morning. Back to Ephesians this morning. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. Uh, before we uh, pray and get into the Word, I want to give you a quick update on um, Marvin Kaufman. One of, he's, he's one of our staff people. Many of you remember we um, asked uh, Marvin to serve as our Director of Senior Ministries, a part-time position starting, last, uh, starting in July. And uh, he, he had about a month where he got to, and he started dealing with some, uh, some health problems. So I just want to give you an update. Just ask you to keep praying for Marvin. A lot of you are on the prayer chain, and you're, you're seeing the updates there. But um, he is, he had come back to Atlantic for a rehab f- facility, but, um, but now he's back at the Methodist Hospital in Omaha. Uh, and really the thing to pray for is there's a wound on his leg that is not healing like it needs to. And so if we could really specifically be praying that that wound would heal, um, and, and uh, it's just really painful the, the way our bodies are designed. It's really painful the way it won't heal. So if we could pray that that would heal. And then just peace for the family as they're just working through this difficulty. So I would just ask you to be praying for that. Um, yeah, so would you pray with me now, actually? Let's, ask for, let's pray for the, the Kaufmans, but then also for, um, for our time in the Word this morning. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much that you, uh, you care so much about us. You love us so much. And uh, we... It just uh, fills us with awe, Lord, and uh, we just thank you. Uh, we want to pray for, for Marvin that uh, you would heal the, this wound on his leg, that you would cause it to close up, uh, that there would be enough circulation there, and that, it would, that you would heal it, Lord. We pray that you would be merciful to him that way, uh, and to Marilyn as well. And uh, we just pray for peace for their whole family as they're going through this. Uh, Lord, I pray for all those who are hurting today. Um, so many of us in this room have, have people uh, are ourselves going through things like that or have people we love are going through things like that and we would ask for your abiding peace uh, that you would touch us Lord and bring healing where healing is needed peace where peace is needed uh, joy in place of grief um, healing from ashes Lord and we pray that you would be doing that in our lives and Lord, I want to be, so many of us have also been praying for friends uh, and, and thinking ahead just a couple of weeks now to the Will Graham Festival and the uh, first weekend there of October, and uh, some will be going out to Des Moines, some might find a way to watch online, maybe even here. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be opening up those, the hearts of those people, that they would be receptive to the gospel. And uh, just for that broader outreach here in our region, as they're in Des Moines for a, a, a long weekend, we pray that many people would come to know Jesus or recommit their, their lives to Jesus, that there would be an outpouring of your spirit, uh, a spiritual harvest during this time of physical harvest. We ask you to do that. And now, Lord, as we turn to Ephesians, uh, would you uh, open our hearts and our minds to understand uh, and to apply and to live out the word that you have for us here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Well, I wouldn't normally start with advice from a warlord, uh, but today I'm going to make an exception. Uh, 
One of the most powerful people to ever live was a, uh, at least from a human perspective anyway, uh, was a man named Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. In the 1200s, 800 some years ago, uh, Genghis Khan, or the Great Khan, as he liked to call himself, uh, built the largest empire in history up to that point. No one had ever ruled a more powerful empire, not Alexander the Great, not even the Romans. Uh, his was the biggest empire in history. His sons would actually make it bigger, uh, but at the time, he was the greatest ruler the world had ever seen. Uh, he led the Mongols, the Mongol people from Central Asia, kind of north of, of China, that area. And over the course of his lifetime, he built an empire that stretched from China, basically the Pacific Ocean, all the way to the Middle East. So if you can picture in your mind a map of Asia, he basically ruled pretty much the whole thing, at least the, the central part. He didn't get India, but powerful, powerful man. When he was an old man, close to the end of his life, he began to worry. He began to worry about the future of his empire, uh, as a lot of ruler types do. He was worried about his legacy. He wanted uh, the empire to, to stay together, and quite frankly, he wanted to keep it in the family. Uh, the problem, though, was that his sons were too much like him. They were ambitious and strong men in their own right, and there were a lot of them. And so he was rightfully concerned that as soon as he died, his sons would start fighting with each other and the whole empire would collapse in on itself. And so to prevent that from happening, he called a family meeting. He got all of his sons together and he sat them all down, especially the more powerful ones. Uh, and uh, we actually don't know, the Mongols didn't keep great records, we don't know what he actually said, but we have a record of, of what he did at this family meeting. And, and the records tell us that um, he, well, actually, I should tell you this first. Uh, Genghis Khan was a powerful man. He, was, uh, he wasn't just powerful politically, he was big, taller than most of his contemporaries, very strong physically. And that helps to understand this, what he did. Because what he did is he, he sat all these, these powerful men, his sons, down, and he took an arrow in his, in his hand, and they were archers. That was their weapon of choice, the, the uh, bows and arrows. And uh, he took an arrow, he held it up to his sons, and he broke it with his bare hands. Not an easy thing to do, but he did it. He broke this arrow in his bare hands. And then he threw the arrow on the ground, and he picked up a bundle of arrows, as many as he could hold in those big hands of his. He held up this bundle of arrows, and he showed them to his sons, and then he went to break them in the same way he had done with the one, but the bundle wouldn't budge. It, it didn't even bend underneath his, his powerful grip. Now, like I say, we don't know what he said or if he said anything at all, but the message was clear, right? You can, you can see the message he was trying to communicate here. If, if you turn on each other after I die, and any of you try to go it along, alone, you're going to be vulnerable. And your enemies are going to come and they're going to snap you in pieces. But if you stick together, if you can maintain your unity as the cons, nothing will be able to break you apart. Last fall, we studied Ephesians. We studied the first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, that's what we did from September through November. And what I want to do today is I just want to pick right up where we left off. So I'm actually not going to do a lot of review. You could go back and listen to those sermons if you wanted to. But uh, in November, we finished the end of chapter 3, and now we're going to pick up with chapter 4. And it, that's actually a great way to study Ephesians, because Ephesians breaks very nicely into two parts. Uh, the, the first Three chapters focus on what Christ has done, what he has done for his people. And so there is this description the book begins with, with a whole series of blessings. I think it's verses 3 through 14, all these amazing blessings we have and this new identity we have uh, because we are now in Christ. 
And, and then he develops that theme some more in the next two chapters. And, and really what it all boils down to is that you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, if we trust in him by faith, then we are part of a new humanity. There's a new race of human beings that God is creating for himself. Ephesians 2.15, uh, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between human beings so that he might create in himself one new humanity, one new man, it says in Ephesians 2.15. And so that's, that's really the first three chapters, is this really high-soaring theology of, of what the church is and who we are in Jesus Christ. When we get to chapter 4, it's like Paul shifts gears, right? He, he changes his pace, and what he does is he moves from theology to what it means, what it means to live this out. And that's actually how the chapter starts. You can see the break. Uh, I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord. He reminds them of what he said at the beginning of the book. You can see how there's this, like, introducing of a whole new movement here. He tells them again, I'm, I'm in jail for you folks. <laughs> More importantly, I'm in jail for the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so chapter 4 begins with this command. He says, walk in a manner worthy. Walk in a manner that is worthy of this calling. What calling? See chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's the calling he's talking about. All that stuff he's just outlined for us. Now, walk in a way, live in a way that is worthy of all these incredible things God has done and is doing in and through us. And that phrase, as I study Ephesians, I think that phrase, walk in a way that's worthy, really controls the rest of the book which is why I'm calling my series here, the second half of the, the Ephesians series, A Walk Worth the Call, because that phrase really governs everything else we're going to look at. So if you could look ahead, you can look ahead if you want to, to Ephesians uh, 4, 5, and 6 over the next several weeks. We'll be looking at different examples, really, of what it means to walk in a way that is worthy, to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. So where we start is where Paul starts, and he starts with unity. That's the first thing he wants to talk about. Uh, God has done all these wonderful things for us, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, it's verse 3. We need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the Holy Spirit, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so that's the first thing we do. If we're going to walk worthy of our calling, like we're going to talk about this fall, we need to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or to put it more simply, we need to stick together. Followers of Jesus need to stick together. That is a manner worthy of our calling. And so uh, what I want to do for the rest of our time is I just want to talk about what that looks like. What does it look like for believers to stick together? And uh, I want to come at it from two angles. Uh, actually, and I'll tell you now, we'll come back to this theme next week when we look at verses 7 through 16, because it's so important. He, he develops it more. But for our time this morning, I want to look at verses 1 through 6 from two angles, First, I want to talk about why, why we need to stick together, and then we'll talk about how, right? So, so it's uh, why unity is important, and then what we need to do to maintain unity, what, what that looks like. So we begin with the why, why we need to stick together, why it's so important to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, on one level, the answer is that it makes us stronger, right? It goes back to Genghis Khan and his sons. Uh, one arrow by itself can be snapped in two, but a bundle of arrows tied together, held together, that's strong. You can't break it. Uh, that's biblical wisdom. God knew that, and the Hebrews knew that long before Genghis Khan came along. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says the same thing. Uh, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. 
a cord of three strands wound together uh, is not easily broken. And so there is that sense. Unity has this very practical value of making us stronger because we are helping each other and we're stronger together than we are apart. It's that kind of idea. But interestingly, that's not the reason Paul focuses on here. That's not what he focuses on in, in verses 4 through 6. He actually elevates the discussion, not that that's wrong, but, but that's kind of a practical reason, but he actually elevates it to a more spiritual sort of reason. And the reason we're supposed to stick together is that we're already together. We are already united. God has already made us one, therefore we better be one. That, that's really the idea here. And, and where you see that is verses 4, 5, and 6. I'm actually going to reverse the passage this morning. I want to treat verses 4, 5, and 6 first, because they're the grounds for what he tells us to do in verses 1, 2, and 3, especially 2 and 3. And so we are already united. And the way he does this, here's what he does in verses 4, 5, and 6. I, I, there's different ways you could organize this, but what I see here are three things we have in common. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian in that true sense of the word, you believe in Jesus, then there are three things you have in common with every other Christian. Wherever they live, whenever they lived, it might have been a thousand years ago on the other side of the planet, uh, you have these three things in common with those believers. And these three things are what unite us. We are united by these three things. Let me tell you what they are. First, uh, we have a common faith. We have a common faith. I think we're going to sing about it later if I was listening to the right songs before. But we, we have a common faith. That doesn't mean we all believe exactly the same things. Right? We don't, right? Both Christians through history and around the world do not believe exactly the same things. But if you're a follower of Jesus, there's this core. There's this common faith that we share, and that common faith is the basis of our unity. Let's hear verses 4 through 6 again, just so they're really present in our brains. Uh, here's what he says. He says, this is verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. He's going to use the word one seven different times. One hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so he goes through these. He says there's one body and one spirit. And the idea there is there's, there's one church and, and one Holy Spirit. So the one body is a reference to the church. Uh, we together are the body of Christ. And that's language Paul uses in other places. Other writers use it. Uh, Paul uses it in Romans. He uses it in 1 Corinthians. He has it here. Uh, the, the body of Christ, uh, the, the believers are a body. We are his body. He is the head of, of his body, the church. And there's a lot of things God does with that picture of a body, but one of them is this an emphasis on unity. Right? A, a, a body, right? I guess there's one standing here in front of you, uh, is, is a unified entity, right? And, and my brain says do this, and the arm does this, and the mouth does this, and, the, and it's a, a unified entity. Um, if I was in some awful accident and I, I lost my arm, my arm would not be part of me anymore, right? It would become you know, medical waste, I suppose. There, there wouldn't be anything to do with it. It wouldn't be part of the body anymore because it had been removed from the body. And so being part of the body is, is, part, uh, is, is a, uh, a, a picture here of unity. That's one of the things that we get. And so when he says there's one body, he's talking about unity. Uh, there's uh, one spirit, he says, and that's the Holy Spirit. It's not kind of like a good spirit among us. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. There's just one. <laughs> there's one Holy Spirit who unites all of his people everywhere. There's not one spirit for Pentecostals and one spirit for Baptists. You know, they, they might think that there is, but, or they might have different ideas. I think that they would know the difference, but they, they would agree with what I'm saying here. But um, they, they might have different understandings of the Holy Spirit's ministry, but, but there's just one spirit. There's only one spirit. 
And he says these others, we serve one Lord, that's Jesus. We adhere to one faith. That's best understood as uh, grabbing the whole, the, the doctrines, if you will, things you know, like when you read or sing the Apostles' Creed, I think that would be an idea here. Uh, be what this is talking about. Uh, we practice one baptism. You know, it, it, we do it differently, but universal among Christians is that we baptize. So there's this one baptism. And those are all making the same point in different ways. The, the basic point is that followers of Christ are united by the core affirmations, uh, not of traditional doctrines, but of the scriptures. The core affirmations of the scriptures. And those core affirmations, what's he saying? He's saying those core affirmations are so important that if someone were to deny them, that person would not be a believer. Right? That's really how core these things are, this idea of, of the unity. And so if someone denied the one Lord, or if someone rejected baptism, nah, I don't need to be baptized, baptism is not a thing that Christians should do. Or if someone renounced the faith, uh, did those core tenets, you know, the virgin birth or the resurrection of Jesus, if someone were to renounce these things, then that person would not be a Christian because they're not sharing in those, that common faith that we have. And so that's the, the basis, the first basis he identifies here of our unity. We are united by a common faith. The second basis of unity in this text is that we have a common calling. We have a common calling. Uh, if you believe in Jesus, uh, you share the same ultimate calling as everyone else who believes in Jesus. Uh, specifically, he says it here, you are called to hope. It's the middle of verse 4. Uh, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. The one hope that belongs to your call. Uh, he, he's gonna, he keeps repeating this word call. You heard it when Dan read it before. Uh, there's, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That's verse 4. He actually did the same thing in verse 2. Uh, he told us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's the same Greek word uh, in, in a different firm. One's a noun, one's a verb. Um, the calling to which you've been called. Four times in four verses, he's got this word calling. There's only one other place in Ephesians, though, where the word calling is used, and it's back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 18, uh, he, he's praying for believers, and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so you may know what is the hope. Same word he's going to grab in chapter 4, verse 4. I pray that you may know the hope to which God has called you. The hope to which you've been called. And so the point he's making, kind of one of his big picture messages traced through Ephesians, is that believers are all called to the same great and living hope in and through Jesus Christ. And we could probably develop that a lot more than I'm going to, but ultimately, I think that's a reference to heaven. That's the ultimate consummation of, of this hope to which we're called. Heaven is our common calling, and that unites us. Right? I think that's, it's, that's what he's building off of here. Uh, believers are united. You're going to go to the same heaven I'm going to go to if you trust in Jesus Christ. And, but it's not just us in the local church. It's true universally. Right? There's not one heaven for Africans where they dance a lot and another one for you know, northern Europeans where they all sit politely and don't do. You know. it's, it's, it's one heaven. If you believe in Jesus, we're all going to the same, to the same place. And, and that unites us. It's actually it, it's meant to be uh, a unified. It unites us, and therefore it should motivate us to pursue unity. That's, that's how the argument runs here, uh, because we're united in these things. I heard a preacher say once that uh, we Christians better start getting along now. After all, we're going to be stuck with each other for eternity. Right? It, it, it's kind of that idea. Uh, we are united by this common calling. So we have common faith, uh, common calling. The third one he talks about here, or identifies, is a common God. We have a common 
God. If you believe in Jesus, you are united with all the other believers who are worshiping the same God. I don't mean common God like pedestrian. I mean common God like the same. He says that in verse 6. We are bound together by, and this is actually where it all kind of culminates in this almost poetic language he uses here, uh, one God and Father. One God and Father of all. It's not two separate beings. That He's God and Father. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so if you're a Christian in China, the one God and Father of us all is your God. He is your God. If you're a Christian in Kenya, he is your God. If you're a Christian in Cuba, he is your God. If you're a Christian in Canada, you see what we're doing here. You see how it works. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your background, whatever your skin color might happen to be, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, then you worship the same God, the one God and Father of us all, which unites us. We are united by that as well. And so we need to stick together, right? That's what he's saying here. It's important for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We need to stick together spiritually because God has stuck us together. We, I mean, it's really the, 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 the logic here. We, Paul is telling us, God is telling us through him, you need to stick together because you're stuck together. That, that's, that's what he's saying here. Uh, and so we're stuck together, we're unified, and therefore we are to live, live unified. That's the, the movement of the letter. Therefore, I urge you to live in a manner worthy of your calling. God is making you this one new race, therefore start living like it. That's the message to us Christians. So that makes the, the second half of what I want to talk about this morning very, very practical and very, very important because it makes us say, well, how do I do that? <laughs> how, Paul, how do we stick together. It's all well and good to tell us to be unified, but how do we do it? Well, it's good we asked, because that's what he, he actually starts with. That's what he's focused on in verses, it's one, two, and three, but it's especially two and three, and I really want to focus mostly on two, because I think three kind of summarizes kind of the thing we're doing, pursuing unity. So really, I want to, I want to focus in on verse two, because I think in verse two, he's telling us how to do it. So how do we stick together? How do we uh, maintain the unity of the faith? Well, we build and, and, in, and practice, really, community-enhancing virtues. Uh, that's the, the term I want to use. I, I got in my head early in the week, and I could never find a better one. Virtues that enhance community or build up community. That's how we do it. That's how we stick together. Uh, last week, we um, talked about our core values as a church. Right? It was kind of a special Sunday. We talked about the five core values of Grace Point Church. One of those core values is community. Right? One of those core values is, is community. And, and one of the things I said about community is that it requires intentionality. Right? It's not just going to happen. It has to be worked at. Right? You have to work at it. We have to work at community. And that is exactly what Paul, Paul's saying here. This is a great example of what we talked about last week. Because in verse 2, he basically says, here's how you work at it. Here's some of the things you need to do. Uh, there's actually more as we keep reading into chapter four, four and five. Uh, but here are some of the things you need to do to build up the unity of your church. And there are four. I want to focus in on four virtues that build community. So that's kind of uh, the outline for, for the rest of this here. So, so let's look at four uh, community building and therefore unity enhancing uh, virtues. The first is humility. Christ-like humility. Humility builds up unity. Humility strengthens unity. Uh, look again at verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How, Paul? How am I going to do that? With all humility. 
That's the first one he starts with, right? right there. With all humility, he says. The word here for humility uh, describes voluntary submission. That's what this word is. It's voluntary submission of voluntarily, i.e. choosing, to be unselfish. So it's submission and unselfishness, but not that's forced upon you. Rather, you yield it voluntarily. That's what this word means. And so one chooses to be unselfish and to put others ahead of him or herself. That's what the word means. Now, you've got to know, in first century Rome, to, and that's where Paul is writing, right? 40, 50 AD, probably around that era. He's writing the book of Ephesians. It's the height of the Roman Empire. Uh, in first century Rome, this trait was viewed as a vice. Humility, this Greek word right here, this was a bad thing. Meekness was weakness. That's how the Romans looked at it. I mean, that, that's how they thought about it. Uh, we, at least in our culture, because of the influence of Christianity, we at least will say we approve of humility, right? We don't do such a good job at it a lot of times, but we'll at least give lip service to humility. But in Paul's world, the world of the early church, humility is a bad thing, which means this is countercultural. Right? So if you, if, you, you know, if you tell a leader today you should be humble, that'll get you more votes, people will like it more, he might go with that. You'll never tell a Roman leader he needs to be humble. It's not going to get him anything. That's a bad thing. That's weakness. And so this is a very countercultural thing here that, uh, that, that God is saying to us. And, and, and that's what God says. He says you need to be like that. Swim against the current. Swim against the tide by treating one another with humility. Put one another ahead of yourselves. Voluntarily submit to one another in the church. That's what's going to build your community. That's what's going to enhance unity in your church. And our model for this, I said it's Christ-like humility, our model for this is none other than Jesus. Jesus himself is the one who shows us what this looks like. This very same word, the, the Greek word here that he uses for humility, uh, it's the exact same word that's used in Philippians 2. And you'll recognize the passage probably when I read it. Philippians 2, starting with verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. There's our word from Ephesians. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So yeah, you're going to take care of your own interests. That's how it works. You have to. Uh, but you're also going to look to the interests of others. And then he says, where, where did I get that from, Paul? Well, it's the same as that of Christ Jesus. It's verse, uh, I think it's verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe in that beautiful passage in Philippians 2 how that's exactly what Jesus did. He humbled himself. He voluntarily submitted to the incarnation. He took on, he became a human being, which in its very form, we human beings are, were created to be servants. And so he, he voluntarily stepped off the throne of heaven and became a human being, took on the form of a servant, and then he unselfishly gave his life for us on the cross. That's our model Paul says in Philippians, and it, it gets pulled in here too. And so that's how you build community in the church. You live the way Jesus lived. You, we, we, we put other people ahead of ourselves. Uh, we, we listen more than we talk. We serve instead of waiting around to be served. In a, humble, in, in a word, we humble ourselves before one another. And when we do that, it builds community. And in building community, it strengthens unity. It binds us together. That's the first one. The second community-building virtue he talks about in this text is uh, gentleness. 
Gentleness. It's, and and it's, it's the next thing he says, and it's actually closely tied uh, with all humility and gentleness. And there's a lot of verses. A lot of times when you see one of these words, you'll see the other one. They actually kind of complement each other. They're almost like synonyms. But there's a little bit of a difference between the two words. Uh, the difference is that this one, gentleness, focuses on the actions that flow out of the attitude. Right? So humility is the attitude. Gentleness is the actions that flow out of it. And so uh, you use words like kindness, concern, courtesy, consideration. Those are all good words to, de to describe this word gentleness. Um, it, it doesn't mean weak. Right? Sometimes we, we, we would think of gentleness as someone who's, who's weak, uh, but that is, that's not the idea. It's more, it's more the idea of, of strength under control, kindness, concern, courtesy. Um, the word shows up in a few other places. For one thing, it's on the fruits of the Spirit, the, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, it's on the list. It's one of the things the Holy Spirit develops in us as we abide in Christ. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, that Galatians passage is interesting because he, he, he mentions gentleness there close to the end of chapter 5. At the beginning of chapter 6, just a couple verses later, he gives an example of what gentleness looks like. You say, what does gentleness look like? Well, Galatians 6.1, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now, you are spiritual. The idea there is you are strong in your faith. You're in a season where your faith is strong. What do you do? Uh, do you come in with a, a stick and kind of <laughs> help get him in line? No, you restore that person who has sinned gently. Right, so it's strength under control. You restore him gently. And again, our model for this is Jesus. You say, well, can somebody show me what this gentleness would look like in action? Well, look at Jesus. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. What does he say about himself? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke, what's that? Well, it's... It's a, a thing that an animal would use to pull something. So this sounds like heavy, but, but no, he says, for I am gentle. And there's our word. It's the exact same word. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. I'm, I'm going to take care of you, Jesus is saying there. I'm, he's, he is kind, considerate uh, of us. And that's how you build community. That's how you build up community in the church. You, we're not harsh with each other. We're not strident. We don't judge each other. We don't gossip about each other. When somebody messes up, we, we gently uh, try to come alongside that person and help that person. We don't isolate them, push them away, shun them. That's, that is the opposite of, of what we see here. Uh, instead, right, we, don't, we don't do any of those things. Instead, we, we treat one, one another with gentleness, with humility and gentleness, he says. That builds community. That uh, does what verse 3 says. I, I, I think you see what I'm saying here, but just to be clear about it, verse 3, I think, is, is the lynch verse here. Uh, you know, so verse 1 says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He's going to tell me a bunch of different ways that are in the manner of the calling in the rest of the book. The first one is that we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How do I maintain the unity of the Spirit? With all humility and gentleness. Those, those first two ones. So it builds up community. Uh, another thing it takes is patience, and that's the third one. The third community-building virtue is, is Christ-like patience. We have to learn to be patient from the power of the Holy Spirit with each other. Uh, that's what it says. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, with patience. Uh, the, the Greek word here that Paul uses, it, it literally means a long time before getting angry. It's kind of one of those uh, compound words that puts a few different words together. Uh, it, it means a long time before you get angry. 
And so we might say someone has a long fuse. You ever use that metaphor? You know, yeah, he's just really patient. He's got a long fuse. He doesn't just fly off the handle when something aggravating happens. It takes a lot to, to get that guy angry, that kind of thing. I was trying to think of a picture of this. And, and what I, I kept thinking of was, um, like, I don't know if any of you like animal videos. Like, you ever watch these online? Uh, I know I've seen a few of these myself. Maybe you've seen something like this. You know, there'll be a dog. Somebody will put on Facebook or TikTok. Is that, that's a thing now. You know, uh, somebody will put a video up of a dog. And it, it's a, a, a strong dog. Like, one of those breeds that's known for being fierce and strong. Like a German Shepherd, right? So you got a German Shepherd, and he's a big, powerful dog. And then there's this kitten climbing on his head. Have you ever seen a video like that? Anybody ever seen? Am I the only one who's ever been ex exposed to these things? Uh, yeah, so there's this big German shepherd, and there's this kitten, and, and it's yanking on his ear, and it's patting at his nose, and, and that dog, he just sits there. He's so disciplined. He's so well-trained. He's a good dog, right? And, and so he doesn't. He could, right? He could just, boom, you know, and that'd be it for the kitten, but he doesn't. Right? Instead, he's, he's this picture of what? Of, you know, I think humans love videos like that because we're like, oh, I wish I could be like that dog. Right? I wish I could be patient like that dog is. And that's, that's kind of the picture here. It's, again, it's strength under control is, is the idea. That's what that dog is like in the video. More importantly, that's what God is like. God is like this. Right? It's, it's, it, actually, it's one of his attributes. God is patient. And so because God is patient, uh, his people are called. To, to be that way. Exodus 34, 6. Uh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Same concept as we're picking up. It's in Hebrew in that word. Uh, it's in Greek in, uh, when Paul writes Ephesians, but it's the same concept. Uh, slow to anger. Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. No, he's patient with you. Uh, it goes on to say in that one, not wanting anyone to perish. I believe it's that verse. And so God is patient. Uh, and Jesus is patient. Right? Jesus is God. But as we zoom in again on Christ-like patience, you see that all through the Gospels. Look at how patient Jesus is uh, with the people around him, especially his disciples, whom he spent so much time with. He was so patient uh, with his disciples. They mess up so many times, right? Not as often as I do, but, but so many times they, they mess up. They get it wrong. They ask silly questions. They do the wrong thing. And not once does Jesus crack down on them or, you know, that's it. Boop, you get out of here. He never once does that. Instead, he's, he's rigorously patient with his disciples. And his is, is the example we need to follow, right? If we're going to stick together and, and grow in genuine biblical community, we, we need to learn to be and continue to be patient with one another. It's not going to do for followers of Christ to get angry with each other. Every time we frustrate each other or we disagree about politics or culture or what to do about COVID or any of these other things where we aggravate each other sometimes, it's not going to do to have a short fuse on these things. And it really is, right? I guess that list there shows you how practical it is, but it's practical, right? And, and it, it has to do with personnel. I was kind of thinking about this one, you know. I am sure, I've been here, you know, 13 years, I think it is now. Uh, I am certain I have made at least a few of you angry over the years. I'm certain of it. I've said things, done things, changed things, whatever it was, I've done things to make you mad. And if you were not patient with me when that happened, right, you, you wouldn't still be here. You wouldn't still be here if you were not patient with me. Or maybe I wouldn't still be here. Maybe you would have gotten rid of me by now. And, and, but, but that's 
the idea, this is very practical. We live this out in the local church especially. And uh, you do it with me, I do it with you, I suppose. You do it with each other. Uh, we persevere uh, in unity by being patient with each other, treating each other the same way Jesus treats us, with patience. Uh, that third one flows right into the next one. It's the last one we'll talk about today. The, the fourth community-building virtue that we see in this text. Uh, I'm going to use the word tolerance. Christ-like tolerance. We, we need to be tolerant of one another. And please understand, when I use that word tolerant, I do not mean it in the modern sense of the word. I'm actually purposely using this word so that I can define the word. Uh, I am not using tolerance in the sense that, you know, I have to affirm everything you do and you have to affirm everything I do. And if you don't approve of my bad choices and my sinful actions, you are a bad person, right? You're intolerant if you don't approve of what I do. That's actually not what the word tolerant means. Right? If you get a dictionary that's 20 or 30 years old, that is not what the word means. Uh, tolerance simply means to forbear or put up with. I don't have to approve it, but to be tolerant means to forbear or put up with. You actually see that in the biblical translations. Um, actually, in this verse, so ESV says, Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Another translation says forbear. It's an older word. Forbearing with one another. New American Standard says showing tolerance. I like that one. Uh, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. If we're going to do that, if we're going to maintain unity, we, we, we got to put up with each other, right? With all those, and, and it's not so much sins, although we're all sinners, and so sin comes into bear in this, but a lot of times when we're talking about this tolerance, we're just talking about all those quirks and those foibles and those faults and those crazy annoying, annoying habits, all those kind of things that sometimes people are like, I don't want to go there anymore. She, she sings too loud behind me. I'm leaving. I'm going to go find another church. Uh, th that kind of thing. That's the sort of thing I think we're, we're talking about here, that Christ-like tolerance. If we're going to maintain unity, uh, we have to bear with one another because you can't live in community. Right? You cannot live in community uh, if you're not prepared to be tolerant of, of other people. I was trying to think of an example. Of this. Uh, marriage is an easy example. Right? If you think of marriage, every couple, that, every husband and wife that get together, there are things they put up with with each other, and they love each other, and it's worth it. Uh, but, but marriage does that. But other relationships do it, too. I, I was thinking about, um, probably because my youngest son is a freshman in college, I found myself thinking about my own freshman year in college. And, and this, I, I got to thinking about my roommate. So, so I went to a school out in Massachusetts, and uh, my, uh, my roommate, my freshman year, was a guy named Bodie. His name was Bodie, and he was a really good guy. I mean, they, we, we, we got along well. Um, we didn't have a lot in common. We, we really didn't. Uh, so we didn't become lifelong friends. You know, it's not one of those stories. I don't even know where he is today, and he doesn't know where I am. So, so it's not like we became you know, besties or anything. But, but we, we lived together peaceably as roommates for an entire year. It went fine, and the reason it worked was we put up with each other. Right? We both had things that the other one would have found frustrating that we just put up with. Um, I'm certain he put up with mine. I don't know what they were, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I have some bad habits that he had to put up with. Uh, but I was thinking of one of his. You know, um, he played rugby. My, my roommate Bodie, he played rugby. He's actually a very athletic guy, but he never got into traditional sports. So he wasn't like football, baseball kind of guy. But when he got to our school and he saw that there was a rugby club, he was just was there. He, so he went and he played rugby. And so it was a fall sport, and he would go off to rugby practice, 
And when he would come back to our room, he would be caked in mud, just covered in this stuff. And rugby, uh, it's actually better played in mud because they don't wear pads. And, uh, and so, you know, if there's mud, you can, you know, it kind of slows things down and gives you something soft to land in. And so a lot of times they would play, you know, they would certainly play in the rainstorms and all the rest that you get. And, uh, and so he would come back, and I don't think they could use the locker rooms. That was the other part. Club sport couldn't have the good locker rooms. And so he would come back to our little one-room, shoebox-shaped room, this little one-room double we had together, and he would be, like I said, caked in mud. And, and he'd come in, you know, 5 o'clock, 5.30, and he'd peel off this, this muddy uniform and these muddy cleats, and he would just pile it all in the middle of the room, and he'd go off to get a shower and, and get dinner, and after that, maybe he'd clean it up that late and that night later something like that. Now, those of you who know me can imagine that might have bothered me a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm a, a little bit of a neat person, not obsessive, hopefully, but um, that's the kind of thing that would bother me, right? A roommate tracking in a couple pounds of mud every afternoon, that, that would get to me. But I wanted it to work. Right? I didn't want to be one of those people who couldn't get along and had to get a new roommate and all that kind of stuff. And so I put up with the mud. Right? I just put up with the mud. And that's what we need to do in the church. We need to put up with the mud. We, we really do. Except in the church, there's a difference. In the church, it's, be, it's not because we're trying to stay out of the dean's office. It's because of love. Do you see where he says that? Bear with one another in love. Be tolerant of one another in love, it says. And so for followers of Jesus, it's not merely practical. For us, it's motivated by this growing appreciation for one another that's centered on Jesus Christ. And so we put up with one another in love, love for one another, and even more, love for Jesus. That's really our, our motivating factor, to, to bear with one another, to be patient, to be gentle, to be humble toward one another as well. We started this morning with a, a few thoughts from Genghis Khan, and I, I want to close with some thoughts from another leader, a man who's about as different from the great Khan as a person could be. Uh, the, uh, the president of the EFCA, so our movement, the Evangelical Free Church of America, our president is a man named Kevin Compaline, and uh, Kevin is a very godly man. I have found him to be so, every time I've had a chance to interact with him, godly man. And uh, about a year ago, he sent out a kind of a, a pastoral letter, really, to everybody in the denomination. So all the churches, all the pastors who are on the, you know, who've subscribed to the newsletter anyway, got this letter from the president of the denomination. And uh, it was September, September 2020, in the middle of just this incredibly tense time in so many of America's churches. Uh, there was the COVID thing, right? I mean, just at the height of it, and churches in some parts of the country hadn't even reopened yet. We'd been able to, but a lot of churches were still closed. Lots of fighting. Pastors were getting fired. People were leaving churches. Uh, and that was just over COVID. Then you had the election going on, Trump versus uh, Biden. Uh, you had... Um, the racial issues, so there's just all kinds of tension in, uh, in, the, in the country, in the American church, and even in some free churches. And so he wrote this letter to, uh, to try to encourage, uh, to encourage people, and he actually based it on this passage, which is probably, I probably put it in a file, I did, I put it in a file with this passage and found it again this week, and, and so he, he wrote on this passage, and, and he talked about unity talked a lot about unity. I just want to close with a couple of paragraphs he wrote because uh, what he said just really nicely summarizes uh, what we need to do and what we've talked about this morning. So this is from uh, President Compaline. He said, we have a choice. We have an option to choose unity. While God gives us the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, verse 3, it's our decision to keep it. 
And it requires both intentional choice and intentional effort. Unity is not just going to come, especially in the middle of tension and conflict. It's going to take some hard work. For some, he went on, I think this idea of unity sounds like, I can't have an opinion. I have to give up my convictions. But that's not what Paul is saying. Unity is not about compromising or sacrificing truth. It's not about downplaying opinions or convictions on certain issues. Unity is about reflecting the heart of Christ to others. It's about seeing through the eyes of others who don't agree with you and seeing those people through the eyes of Jesus. That's a great summary of unity, seeing people uh, through the eyes of Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I, um, I praise you. We praise you. Uh, you are one, Lord. You are united in your own being, and flowing out of that to your people comes this call to unity. Uh, I want to pray for our church. We pray for our local church uh, that you would help us to maintain uh, the bond of the spirit, uh, the bond of the spirit in peace, Lord, and the bond of peace, the bond the, that we would be able to maintain this unity. I thank you for how much you have helped us, Lord. At times when I have heard of uh, churches splitting and pastors under incredible pressure and leaders under incredible pressure and screaming at each other in meetings and people stomping out. We, we haven't seen any of that in, over these, these issues. And, and we praise you for that. That is, not, that is not to our credit. That is to your credit and for you working in us and through us. And we will ask, Lord, that you would continue to build us up in that, that you would build us up in our unity, Lord. Help us to be humble uh, with each other and gentle and patient to forbear with one another in love because that's what you've done for us and that's what you call us to do for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.